The scripture this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verses 1 to 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let's go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to this place uh, to seek you, to learn more about you, to be transformed by you, to be renewed by you, restored by you. And whether we come to this place uh, knowing you deeply and your son Jesus, or we come to this place exploring who God is and having questions, uh, may you meet us, Lord. May you meet us to help uh, refine us and to clarify to us what grace is, um, what it means to follow your son Jesus and live unto you. We pray in your son's precious name. Amen. Well, my name is Soon Pak, one of the pastors here, and welcome uh, that we can rest and to worship together as a body for those of you joining us online. Uh, thank you for joining us as well. And we've been continuing in our series through the Gospel of John, walking with John. Uh, as he is sharing the life of Jesus, his life, his death, and resurrection. And in this moment, we get to walk with John and Jesus and interact with him as we learn what it means to have faith, to believe in Jesus, but not just that, that what the implications of that life looks like as we've been exploring through John 10 and now that life and life to the full, that God uh, did not send Jesus into the world that would just give us a life down here, but a life that is abundant, overflowing, and flourishing. And so John is trying to communicate what that life looks like as we have faith 
in him. And the drama in our scope of text today is around the death of Lazarus. And uh, if you grew up in the church or even uh, you know that name pretty familiarly, or if you, even if you don't know or you're not involved in church, you probably know about Lazarus uh, and, that he, and his resurrection that he was raised again. Hate to ruin it, uh, spoiler alert there, but I already said it, Jesus is going to say it anyway. But anyway, uh, Lazarus comes back. So, but we're in our text today around the death of Lazarus and the confusion that unfolds in that story. Now, when we think through the Old Testament and we think through the New Testament, we think of history itself, we know that God uh, works amongst his people. That he's sharing this story, this grander narrative, this great story of creation and fall and the story of redemption of God pursuing his people through all the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, and finding that pinnacle in Jesus. And that ultimately all things will be made right as we were singing about, right? The battle is fighting, but the victory is won. That one day God will make all things right. We know how this grander narrative will end, but we also have another story of our own lives. Uh, the stories of the things that we see and experience in our own lives, what we see and touch, and how those things in interact with one another. And there are times those two stories, God's story and our story, are in congruence with one another. And in those moments, there's great alignment. There's probably blessing and there's peace and there's this, this goodness that we feel. But most often, if we're honest with ourselves, those two stories are not aligned. More often than not, they're on two different tracks, it feels like. In those moments, we want God's story to kind of speed up a little bit. So uh, it can catch up to where our hearts want our story to go. Or maybe God's story is having it down here and you want it up here or reversed. Or sometimes you're really wanting that story to turn. You're just not really happy the way that God has written your story so far in your life. And in those times, we find ourselves in a state of frustration, disappointment, or even suffering. And maybe you've gone to church your whole life and you know what the right answers are. Uh, theologian and pastor Ozzy Sproul talks about the proper response, and he talks about this. He says that we are taught, we are taught by this delay on his part, like this, uh, that we ought not to judge of the love of God from the condition which we see before our eyes. When we have prayed to him, he often delays his assistance, either that he may increase still more our ardor in prayer, or that he may exercise our patience, and at the same time accustom us to obedience. And I think if you, you've been in church or you, you were raised in the Christian faith, you, you sort of know that to be true. You know it in here. But I wonder how well do you know it in your own hearts? That you know when thing, your story doesn't align with God's story and it's going a different path. We know the Lord wants us to grow in prayer, grow in new obedience, but I wonder if you know it in our hearts when it feels like things just aren't turning out the way you want it to. It's another year of waiting. Another year of singleness in your life when you're pursuing and desiring to be married. Another year of childlessness when you've been wanting it for so long. Another year of wandering, a year of loss. Our heart feels almost defeated and immobilized. I wonder if you can relate with that feeling where you know what God's trying to do, but in your hearts, you just feel like you can't move. You almost feel paralyzed. Then in those moments, it feels like we're trailing as God's story continues to move forward in other people's lives. And you're just stuck behind. There's a story that came out in the 1950s, 1950s a short story called The Remobilization of Jacob Horner, uh, a fictional story. Jacob Horner is a young Johns Hopkins University graduate. 
Uh, he's on the cusp of his career, uh, take on the world, but what he finds themselves are these temporary moments of paralysis. He just falls and he can't move. He sees doctor after doctor and no one can really explain. There's no physical symptoms or anything going on that, uh, that would cause this. And he finally uh, meets a doctor and he asks him, what's going on in these moments? And he shares that right before he has this almost existential crisis where he gets lifted up and sees the world from a cosmic perspective. Jacob Horner says he gets this cosmic view of his life and sees how purposeless his life is. None of his actions have any impact. And in that moment, he falls into this temporary paralysis. And this doctor uh, has this conversation and, and shares with them, here's your issue. In life, there's all, so many characters in your life, but the most important thing is this, that we have to believe that everyone has, has to see them necessarily as the hero of their own story. This is what the doctor says, is everyone is necessarily a hero of his own story. And what the doctor was trying to communicate to Jacob Horner was that, that in, in life, you have to see yourself as the main protagonist. And when you remove yourself, that was what's causing Jacob to be paralyzed. And I think if you're a follower of Jesus, you would say, no, that's not true. Because we know Jesus. But I wonder if we know it in our hearts. See, most of our life, when we find crisis, uh, it's easy to move forward as the hero of our own story, Right? if you have the means to do it, the relational network to do it, if you can fix it on your own, if there's a problem, you, you tackle it. You know you can handle it. But what happens when you hit one of those that are of cosmic proportions, a depression that you can't see the other side of, a cancer diagnosis that doesn't look very promising, a loss of a loved one, a dream of a family that just doesn't seem to be materializing? Do we become paralyzed? Do we know it in our hearts? To really know in the deepest of our hearts that there's another hero of a story he's calling you to. Or we just stand there immobilized. I share all this because I think that's what Jesus is trying to do in his encounter with Mary and Martha and disciples with Lazarus. See, in that moment of paralyzing disappointment, Jesus, Jesus shows that there is another story and he is the hero to make it all come to fruition. Where do we begin? It starts with the foundation that Jesus is trying to communicate. It is the love of Jesus. And this is what I want us to leave with, is the love of Jesus. Verse 1 through 5. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that, the God's, so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And just another reminder as we work through John's gospel that this is a historical account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. At the same time, we have to understand this isn't in real time. John's not writing these as it's happening. It's not like a real-life Event John later in life would write these accounts and these stories. And by that time, uh, in this society where literacy was low, these stories would have gone out. So people in the early church in the first century knew of Jesus, knew of John, knew of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So in this text, he's describing this event, this Mary who poured perfume 
uh, on Jesus. His feet and uh, washed it and dried it with her hair. This is a story that people would have already known about. And you're like, yes, that's why this is here as the describer of these new characters. Uh, but we don't get to that story until John 12. Just a little healthy reminder to take note because we're going to come back to that point. And we find at this point that Lazarus is sick. And the sisters sent word to Jesus to share him of Lazarus' status. And while they, this is the first time we encountered them in John's gospel, we know there's a deep relationship between Jesus and this family in Bethany. And look how they address him. These sisters, they address him, appealing to him. Uh, the Lord, the one who you love, is sick. Not, Lord, the one who loves you is sick. Do you see the difference? They don't address him saying on basis of Lazarus's love for Jesus. It says, the one Jesus loves, the one who you love is six. They appeal to Jesus on the basis of his love for Lazarus. Pastor, uh, the late Pastor James Montgomery Boyce says uh, they did love him. They did love him, but they knew that their love for Jesus would never in a million years be an adequate basis for their appeal. This is the only grounds that, they can, that any of us can ever have in approaching the Almighty. This is the foundation that grounds our very interaction with God. It's not that, that the world loved him so much that God sent his son into the world. But what does John say? For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten, yeah, the King James fans, begotten son into the world. He gave his one and only son. This is where it starts. Not that we love God, but that God loved us. Even in this interaction with Mary and Martha, Jesus is trying to remind us is God's love that is driving this. That's the foundation of how we can approach God. Our love to him is not worth speaking of, but his to us can never be spoken enough of, as one commentator wrote it. I have four children. Most of you in the church know that. Uh, four kids. My youngest is Noah, who's turning three in just a couple of weeks. That's exciting. No applause. Okay, it's okay. We'll move on. Uh, <laughs> If you've been around him, you know that he is very, 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 very attached uh, to my wife, Erin. Uh, you know, he was born in 2020, uh, COVID baby, right? Uh, and just a lot of time with Erin. So uh, I take as much as I can, a little moments I can have with him. So I drive him to preschool. Uh, just this week, I'm driving him to school, and he's just talking about how much he loves mommy and uh, Levi and Titus and Abby, his siblings, and and I just said, hey, what about daddy? Do you love daddy? And he thinks for a second, no, no. <laughs> As a father, my heart broke. Uh, I couldn't even drive. I was just crying the whole time. No. Uh, I just said, you know, I said, well, I love you very much. Uh, this is, and his actual words is like, I guess I love you then, right? <laughs> yeah, he's very hurtful. Uh, now imagine in that moment, he said, no, I don't love you. And I said, well, I don't love you either. I'd be an awful parent, right? You guys would be like, I question if you should be up here. Uh, <laughs> but here's the truth. As a father, you love your children. As a mother, as a grandparent, you love your children. as close to unconditional love like Jesus has for us. And I will love him all the days of my life to the last breath, no matter what he does, no matter if he directs me, walks away from me, as a father, I'm going to love him because that's who I am. I will love him. And Jesus, God, loves you. Without that foundation, nothing else matters. 
It is love that brought Jesus to this earth, love that drove Jesus to the cross, love that brings you and I to that same cross and says, offer your sins for you will receive grace. This is love. Not that we have loved, that God has loved us first and sent his son as a propitiation, atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's where we start. That's what the story's about, that God, Jesus, loves you wherever you are. His immense love for you cannot be measured. Where does that leave us? Here's the thing. God's love for you doesn't fit nicely into your own story, as maybe the world will say. God's love gives you the capacity to live into his story. Spurgeon says the love of Jesus does not separate us from the common necessities and infirmities of human life. And in his day and age, but he's talking about all people. The men of God are still men. People of God are still people. The covenant of grace is not a charter of exemption from consumption or rheumatism or asthma. Saying the hardships of life, the things that drag you down, you're not exempt from it because God loves you. But I'm saying what that does is the capacity to live into his story he develops in you. So when that gap happens, there's confusion. And we see it in the disciples. There's confusion amongst his followers and probably confusion for people like you and me. Verse 6 through 15, a little bit longer. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, Jesus, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, the disciples, they said, a short while ago, the Jews were there trying to stone you. And yet you're going back? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble. But they see by his words, uh, they see by the world's light. It is when a person walks at night, they stumble, for they have no light. And after he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant uh, natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Everything Jesus does in the story is to lift the gaze of Mary and Martha and his disciples uh, from the story that they see with their own eyes to the greater story that he's writing for God's glory so that it may grow in their faith and for that very story that God is writing. And with a gap between understanding what we see with our own eyes and what God is doing uh, beneath it all or grander than it all, uh, that gap begins to widen. Confusion filters in, right? When you don't understand why this is happening. Why are we going through this suffering? Why is this happening to my friends? What, what is going on? When that gap gets widened, confusion filters in. And apart from the grace of God, the love of God, it leads to resentment, anger, and a grief that we can't come out of. And next week, we're going to explore the confusion of Mary and Martha. Uh, when they talk about, Lord, if you were here, you, you would have you rescued. You would have raised Lazarus. You would have you saved Lazarus. That hurt and confusion But today, our text is with the disciples, the confusion of his disciples. And the disciples knew the deep love that Jesus had for Lazarus. It's shown in the text as John is writing it. But he delayed his travel for two days. And these disciples had seen Jesus raise people, strangers from the dead, uh, healed strangers amongst their midst. Yet the one he loves, he delays for two more days. They're probably confused through that process. So after two days, when Jesus says, let's go back to Judea, they're probably sitting there going, what's going on? And he reminds them, don't you know the people back there, they're trying to kill you? 
and by proxy, their lives were in danger as well. Then Jesus explains through questions around this imagery of daylight and, and nighttime, explaining the purpose of Jesus, why he was there and, and, and in this season of daylight that he's supposed to go and continue this ministry. But they get confused anymore uh, in that context. And he talks about Lazarus' death just being sleeping. Uh, it feels like over and over again, the disciples are just behind the eight ball. And I think it's easy to judge the disciples from our perspective. We see it all, right? But if you were there, I think I kind of sympathize with them. Like, I think I would be confused. Like, what's going on, Jesus? I'm not really quite sure. When uh, our family was living in China and we were teaching English at a university, I would interact a lot with the foreign affairs office and their department. We're in charge of us, uh, helping us get integrated into the city, the culture, and the university, and just uh, knowing what was going on. And I would ask him questions like, hey, is room 206 the room where I'm supposed to be teaching? Or uh, is this the right code for our apartment? And, uh, and they would respond, of, of course. And, and I'd be like, well, these aren't of course answers. They're, they're, they're like, they're, I'm trying to ask for clarity. And they're like, no, of course. And I just get more and more frustrated. Uh, and I found out later that they were using like British English, which that just means agreement. At, at least what they that's what they told me. But the whole time, I just felt like condescended to you all the whole time. Like, why? These aren't, of course, answers. <laughs> Give me like, a clear answer for this, uh, uh, for this situation. Uh, and I wonder if the disciples are saying, like, Jesus, these things aren't obvious to us. You're making it seem like these are obvious things. We don't understand. Help us understand. And what Jesus was saying through their confusion is simple things. Jesus is trying to remind them that he is the Lord. He's Lord of all things, even death itself. And two, that there's a purpose for everything that's happening. There's a reason things are unfolding. Calvin, uh, John Calvin, the theologian and pastor and, and reformer, talks about this as Christ shows that he is the Lord of death in this passage he's talking about. When he says that he awakes those whom he restores to life. When God permits us to be overwhelmed with distresses and to languish long under them, let us know that in this manner he promotes our salvation. In this passage, Jesus is trying to remind his disciples, in your confusion, let me remind you, I am the Lord even over death itself. And no matter what the delay happens, I'm trying to help you grow in your faith, to mature you in your salvation. Jesus is Lord over all of it. Those things in your life that causes the stress, he allows them to happen even for a long period so that we can grow in our identity in him and him alone. I'll say it again. He's trying to help you grow in your identity to trust in him and him alone. Him and him alone. It's heavy words that we say often. But what Jesus is trying to shape, transform, and find us to cling to him and him alone through all the distresses of our lives. I wonder if that's true. When you find yourself here, do you trust in him and him alone? Or do you look to everything else to fill that need? Is it him and him alone that we long for? Is that true of us? Whatever situation you may be in, can you say that you trust in him and him alone? And then Jesus puts it right to the test with Thomas. And I say the last one is this painful reminder, painful reminder as Jesus closes this, this interaction with the disciples. One verse. Then Thomas, the disciple Thomas, if you're familiar with the scriptures, Famous for a lot of things, uh, also known as Didymus, which is the Greek uh, name for him, said to the rest of the disciples, he's speaking to the rest of his brothers, let us also go that we may die with him. 
Jesus understood the road to raising Lazarus would ultimately be the beginning of the final chapter of his earthly ministry. Next was Jerusalem, then finally the cross. But what the disciples didn't fully understand in this moment uh, was that even though there were people trying to kill him in Jerusalem, there was these group of people that wanted to squash his movement, to kill Jesus and squash his movement. They didn't really understand the full plan that Jesus was unveiling. But in this moment of bravery for Thomas, even in the midst of the death that was pending uh, for Jesus and all his followers, he, in this moment of bravery, he encourages the others, let us also go that we may die with him. I think in the day of this day of social media, we have a lot of conflicting opinions, right? Some people are like, I don't think anyone's sitting there like, this is the best thing in the world. There's nothing wrong with it. I don't think there's anyone on that camp. There's probably a lot of camp people saying how destructive it can be and the dangers of it. And there's probably a lot of us in the middle that says there's a lot of good things, and, but there's a lot of bad things. Well, I think good things, when you look at social media, is all the memories that start popping up. I like that. It's like, oh, I didn't know I did this like eight years ago, and there's all these photos and memories. I'm like, oh, this is, this is great. I'm like, get to remember these things, events I did with my children or places that we went. I think that's a, that's a fun way to capture all these memories. But we also know there's dangers, right? They remember everything. Like, always be careful what you put out there because it would be like something you do. And it was like, well, 15 years ago you said this. And you're like, I don't even remember what I said. I, I'm thankful that there wasn't a, this kind of platform when I was 15 years old where I could put my ideas and thoughts out there for people to see. I don't think I'd be allowed to be on the pulpit preaching if those were captured somehow. No offense to 15-year-olds if you're in here. There's probably great thoughts coming out of there. But I'm saying it remembers everything. And I wonder, I say all that saying, if Thomas, Thomas felt this way at all. As stories of this moment began to circulate around the early church, I wonder if Thomas cringed every time he heard this part of the story being told. See, everyone knew that in Jesus' darkest moment, he ran away like many of the other disciples. I wonder if the story of this false bravado, this ironic moment that he fled, I wonder if he cringed. John, please don't put that in there. I wonder if Thomas cared. I don't know, but I know this, that Thomas later in life learned that he was both so wrong about what he said, but also so right about what he said. Here's what he was wrong. No one could go with Jesus where he was going to go. Only Jesus could walk the path to the cross. Jesus was coming not to see a successful movement, but a transformation of all life itself, a kingdom that's transformed to the way he wanted uh, that was always meant to be. And the only path to that king kind of kingdom is through the atoning sacrifice of his own self on the cross, the death of Jesus, not his movement of followers, but only Jesus, the precious blood of Jesus, what ushered that kingdom. Thomas couldn't go with Jesus. He couldn't die with Jesus. It was only him and him alone on the cross. But here's what he was right. In that moment on the cross, when Jesus gave his life, he called all those who would ever put faith in him to also come and die on the cross. The cross bids everyone, if you say, I'm a follower of Jesus, it says, put to death your old self, come and follow me. Thomas was also right, let us go with him and die with him. Because Thomas, that what we knew of him would die. When Jesus died on the cross, he would give his life and ultimately Thomas would lay his life down. Bonhoeffer, the the 20th century theologian, pastor, 
says it so beautifully. It's a long quote, but I want to read it. The cross is laid on every Christian. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give, our, we give over our lives to death. When Christ calls a man, a person, he bids him to come and die. It may be death like that of his first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. Or it may be the death of Luther, Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. Think, talking about Martin Luther. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ. The death of the old man at his call. For some of us, it's time to put death to our own story. And Jesus calls and beckons you to live in his story. And the promise is this. It's not that those fiery trials that you're going through, those immobile frustrations you may be feeling, the unmet longings uh, that you can't satisfy, uh, they don't get absolved. God's love doesn't come and take all that away. But what Jesus promises, that he will stand with you through it all. He was, let me show you the grander story that I'm writing. And he lifts you up. And he calls you to come and die to your very selves. And said, let, why don't you be a part of what I'm writing? This beautiful story of my kingdom in your life, in this church, in this community, and to the ends of the earth. Nothing will ever look like the way it, was, that way it is. But a return to the way it always meant to be. One of the peace and unity, harmony and justice where evil will be squashed and good triumph only through Jesus and him and him alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a good God who calls us, um, calls us to a new life, not by our good works that we think we can lift up to you, but only by the work of your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, all that we have lifted up to you are like rubbish, like filthy rags, and only through the covering of your blood, uh, Father, are we declared righteous, called a son and daughter. For those who know that to be true, let us continue to live that life out in a full, new, full obedience and new faith to grow in our capacity to live into the grander story, not minimizing our pain and hurts, but, Father, redeeming them for your glory. And for those who have yet to taste the fruit of salvation, may our hearts be stirred only by your grace that effectual calling may come live in our hearts to come to the cross, to lay down our lives and say, we will follow you. I pray all this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.